Welcome to Your Torah, a 36-week journey into the world of the 63 books of the Mishnah, 18 minutes at a time. A project of Jofa UK, designed as a special invitation to engage in Torah and make it yours. If you'd like to sponsor or dedicate an episode of Your Torah, please get in touch via our website, which can be found at ukjofa.org. Hi, my name is Gila Hoke, and I am going to be teaching today about Tractate Makot. Makot happens to be one of my favorite tractates, partially because it is one of the few tractates that I've had the opportunity to learn through from beginning to end more than once, which has really given me an appreciation for the breadth and depth of the material. But I also really like the diversity of topics and how each one really explores questions of human psychology in the halachic legal system. So let's get started. Tractate Makot is found in the middle of Seder Nezikin. It's one of the shortest tractates. It's only three chapters long. It sounds like it should be discussing the laws of makot, of lashes, which is one of the corporal punishments that the Sanhedrin was able to give. So last week you learned about um, Tractate Sanhedrin, where the second half of Sanhedrin talks about the death penalty that the Sanhedrin is able to give. And then makot, coming right afterwards, would discuss the other corporal punishment, lashes. We're going to see that that's actually not true, and most of the tractate actually discusses other laws and not makot, but we'll get there in a moment. First, let's understand what this punishment is. Lashes were given in Jewish courts for the violation of any negative commandment in the Torah. For example, the Torah says, lo yachal chamet, that there's a prohibition to eat chamet on Pesach. If a person violates this commandment and does eat chametz on Pesach, that person would get lashes in court. Um, so as long as the Torah does not specify what the punishment is, the assumption is that it is lashes. The Torah also says that a person is supposed to always get 40 lashes for any of these sins. That number was lowered to 39 by the Chachamim, lest we accidentally miscount and end up giving someone more than 40. However, every person really got their own personal number based on what they were medically able to stand up to based on how the process went, meaning if they started suffering too much from the lashes, we stopped. So every person really got a different number, but the maximum was 39. So what exactly happens in Tractate Mako? Now that we understand the theory of where the name comes from, what exactly is inside the tractate? So the first chapter deals with the laws of Adim Zomim, of false witnesses. The second chapter deals with the laws of Irmiklat, of the cities of refuge that were provided for accidental murders. And then the last chapter finally gets the laws of Makot. The Mishnayot there list all of the sins that one might get lashes for. And then the second half of the chapter deals with how those lashes were administered in court. So what I want to explore now is what does unify this book? Why is this book made up of these three seemingly unrelated topics? Originally, Tractate Makot did not exist. Originally, Makot was a part of Tractate Sanhedrin that you learned about last week. However, Sanhedrin was so long, it was originally 13 chapters, that the Chachamim decided to cut it down to only 10 chapters. Note that that is not including Perakachelik. Um, the books that we have now of Tractate Sanhedrin actually have 11 chapters. One of those chapters was added later on that discusses who gets Olam Haba, who merits to go to the world to come. And that chapter is not included in the original count of 10. So originally, Tractate Sanhedrin was cut down to 10 chapters, which is, first of all, just a nice round number, but it also is the same number as all of the previous tractates in Nizikin. So actually, the first four tractates in all of Seir Nizikin are all made up of 10 chapters. And then the last three chapters that were left over after that division became their own book, became Tractate Makot. 
this artificial division between 10 and 13 chapters actually creates some awkwardness in the opening of Makot. So let's look at the first Mishnah together and see how that plays out. The Mishnah opens with a very logical question and asks, How are the witnesses made Zomamim? Meaning, what is the process for declaring someone a false witness? Which is a really great question if we're going to be discussing an entire chapter now of the laws of false witnesses. We should know, how does that process start? How does that work? But the Mishnah actually does not answer that question and offers a very strange response. The Mishnah brings the following case. So the witnesses come to court and they say, we are here to give testimony about the following person. We'll call him Reuven for our purposes. We are here to give testimony about Reuven, that he is a Ben Grusha or Ben Chalutza. The witnesses are giving testimony about the status of this man. The assumption in the Mishnah is that this person is a Kohen, and what we didn't know about him that the witnesses are coming and telling the courts now is that while his father is a Kohen, which should make him a Kohen, his mother is a divorcee or a chalutza. What is a chalutza? A chalutza is a woman whose husband died when they were presumably very young. She did not have any children. And so according to the Torah, she is then supposed to marry the brother of her deceased husband. There is another option to not marry that brother, and instead she can do um, the ceremony to make her a chalutza, where she declares that he does not want to marry me, and she is then free to marry anyone else. However, that woman, as well as a divorcee, are both forbidden from marrying a kohen. And if either of those women marry a kohen and have a son, that son is not able to reap the benefits of the kihuna, of the priesthood. So nowadays, he would not get an aliyah as a Kohen. Back in the day, he would not be able to eat the food that was given to the Kohen, etc. Um, so these witnesses, coming back to our case, these witnesses are coming to court and saying that this man standing before us, Ruven, is essentially, even though we think he is a Kohen, he is actually prohibited from taking part in any of the benefits that a Kohen would get. They are then found to be lying, um, and we need to find out what punishment we should be giving them. The general rule of thumb when it comes to false witnesses is that we give them the punishment that they were trying to give to the defendant. So, for example, if the witnesses came to court and said, this person, the defendant, owes a million dollars, they're found out to be lying, those witnesses now owe a million dollars. If the witnesses came to court and said the defendant committed a murder, the witnesses would now be killed. They would get the death penalty instead. So in theory, what should happen in our case? In our case, these witnesses should now get the same punishment that they were trying to give Reuven. They should have their status changed, and they should not be allowed to be Kohanim, if they are. But the Mishnah does not follow this rule and says instead, We do not enact that punishment upon these witnesses. We do not make them become ineligible for being a Kohen. Rather, this is an exceptional case, and we are going to give these witnesses 40 lashes. Now, you might have noticed that I needed to add a lot of extra information to this Mishnah for it to make sense. This Mishnah... This case does not explain to us the basic laws of false witnesses. Instead, they gave us an exceptional case that assumes a lot of knowledge about how the process of false witnesses works. 
The Mishnah continues and brings us another exceptional case. This time, the witnesses come to court and say, we are giving testimony that this person is an accidental murderer. He accidentally killed someone, and he needs to go to an irmiklat. He needs to go to the city of refuge. Again, if we find out that these witnesses are lying, we do not give them galut. We do not send them to the irmiklat, to the city of refuge. Rather, we give them 40 lashes. That is our Mishnah, bringing us two exceptional cases of Edin Zomim, of false witnesses. This is a very, very strange opening. Why, if we're going to begin an entire discussion about Edin Zomim, about false witnesses, why is the Mishnah starting from such a strange place? We should start with the basic laws and then move on to the exceptional cases. The Gemara asks this question as well. However, Going back to our original point that Makot used to be a part of Sanhedrin, the Gemara points out that if we go back to the end of Tractate Sanhedrin and we look at the last Mishnah there, everything becomes clear. The last Mishnah in Sanhedrin also was discussing exceptional cases of false witnesses. Our first Mishnah in Makot just picked up that train of thought and continued it into a fuller conversation about false witnesses. Eventually, the Mishnah will explain to us the basic laws, but because we are really continuing a conversation that already started at the end of Sanhedrin, our Mishnah starts at an awkward place, at a strange place. Our Mishnah starts in the middle of a conversation and eventually has to go backwards. All of that being said, it wouldn't really be fair to say that Makot is just an addendum to Sanhedrin. It's not just tacked on and left over. But there are elements that actually unify it as its own tractate. First of all, in that Mishnah that we just learned, we saw that even though the Mishnah is talking about false witnesses, and even though it is a very strange place to start, it actually works very nicely for our tractate because it raises all three of the topics that we are going to be talking about throughout the entire tractate. It talks about false witnesses. It talks about a case where the witnesses are accusing someone else of having to go to a city of refuge, raising the topic of the second chapter. And it raises the topic of the third chapter of Makot by saying that in these exceptional cases, we give the false witnesses lashes. With this nice opening, the Gemara is actually able to raise a lot of the basic concepts and principles that are going to be discussed throughout the tractate. So while the Mishnah is a strange place to start and is clearly originally connected to Sanhedrin, it also at the same time provides a nice introduction to all the topics that will play out throughout the tractate. It also creates a nice envelope starting with a short discussion of makot, of lashes, which we will see fleshed out much more at the end of the tractate. There is also a thematic connection between all of these topics. The laws of Adim Zomim, of false witnesses, and the cities of refuge are inherently connected. It is not by chance that they are next to each other. The primary psukim that discuss these topics are found in Sefer Dvarim, chapter 19 one right after the other. The Torah first explains the cities of refuge, how they should be set up, and what defines exactly an accidental murder. And then right afterwards, the Torah transitions to discuss a case of false witnesses and the punishment that they receive. Why is it that the Torah put these together? Clearly, there is a connection between the two, and it's not by chance that we transition from one to the other. I would like to suggest that the unifying theme between these two topics is a question of intent. 
usually when we are prosecuting a crime, both in halakha and in the secular system, one of the major questions we ask ourselves is what was the intention of the criminal or of the defendant? Did this person intend to commit a crime? And what exactly did he do? There's a balance here between intent and action. And usually both are taken into consideration in defining the guilt of the defendant. What's interesting about Adim Zomamim, about false witnesses, and about Ir Miklat, about these cities of refuge, is that these are both cases that take those concepts of intent and action to an extreme. Let's start with Ir Miklat. The cities of refuge is a strange case where someone has committed a murder by accident. There is a clear act of murder. However, there is no intent at all. The way one is able to go to an irmiklat is if the courts determine that this person did not intend to kill the victim. It was entirely an accident. And so we end up with this very extreme case where someone receives a punishment, some type of consequence, for an action without any intent. Adim Zoumim is the exact opposite. And for this, we need to take a step back into how the process of Adim Zoumim works. Adim Zoumim can only happen between the verdict and the enactment of the punishment, meaning the testimony needs to be heard, the court needs to accept the testimony and bring down a verdict for the defendant. The defendant needs to be on death row, but cannot have yet been killed. At that point, in that window of time between the verdict and the enactment of the punishment, if we find that these witnesses were lying, at that point, we begin the process of Adim Zomim, of false witnesses. If we find out that they are lying, either before the verdict or after the punishment has been enacted, there are no consequences. If we find out they're lying before the verdict, the testimony is thrown out or not punished. If we find out they're lying after the punishment has been enacted, nothing happens to them at all. Therefore, Adim Zomamim ends up being this very strange situation that the Chachamim discuss at great length, where the witnesses have the intent to commit a crime. They come to court with the plan to cause the defendant to receive some punishment, but they are unsuccessful. There is no action. The sages explain that speech is not an action. They do not actually manage to change anything about their reality. All they've done is come to court and spoken. And speech in halakha is not considered an action. And so we end up with this case where Adim Zomim are being punished for intent and not for action. By putting the Torah, by putting Adim Zomim, false witnesses, and Ir Miklat, the cities of refuge, one right after the other, we end up with this interesting picture where we can ask ourselves, where do intent and action come into play in halakha? And I think this is a great question for us in our own lives as well. We often need to ask ourselves how to find the balance between action and intent. An empty action by accidentally doing something, while it may be appreciated, or it may be unappreciated, depending on the action, often takes on much greater meaning if there's intent, if there's meaning behind it. At the same time, good intentions, while important, don't speak as loudly without action behind our intent. And I think that by putting these two cases, one right after the other, the Torah is asking us to examine the question of action and intent and the interplay in our lives, not just in extreme cases of murder, but in our own day-to-day lives and how we balance intent and action, how we balance meaning and putting actions behind that meaning. It's been a pleasure to learn with you today. Have a great day. 
This episode of Your Torah is brought to you by Jofa UK, in collaboration with women from around the world who all share a passion for Torah study. If you are enjoying Your Torah, consider sponsoring an episode. Find out more by visiting ukjova.org. Join the conversation on social media using the hashtag YourTorah.